and welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Maria Korsnik, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Hi, Maria. Thanks for joining with us. Hi, Marty. Thanks to be here. So there's a lot I want to talk to you about. Um, Give us an overall picture now of the role you see nuclear power playing potentially as we build out the grid of the next five to 10 years and address carbon and all the, the issues that we have to face. Sure. Uh, Thanks for the question. Um, Really, if you look at nuclear today, um, the plants that we have um, are 20% of the um, electricity sector and more than 50% of the carbon-free generation uh, for the U.S. grid. And this is a very exciting time for nuclear because as we look ahead, actually see that doubling uh, between now and 2050, uh, if not more. Um, And so we are about 90 gigawatts uh, generation today. So that would be an additional 90 gigawatts of of generation. And um, because we're talking more small modular reactors, that 90 gigawatts uh, could turn into about 300 SMRs that would be uh, added to the grid. And so uh, imagine nuclear really forming the backbone of that clean energy, highly reliable grid upon which the intermittent resources uh, can also be added. So when you say doubling, will it represent 40% of the electric power generated in this country? Well, the thing is, I think the whole grid is going to get larger. So Mm -hmm. even if we double nuclear, depends on how much larger the grid gets. Some people imagine the grid to be twice as large. So it could be that we would double nuclear and it might still be 20% of the electric sector. Um, That, uh, again, it depends a bit on how fast the grid will grow. But it's also possible that nuclear will be a larger percentage than 20. So... Is the era of large baseload nuclear plants like we saw in the 70s and 80s coming through, is that pretty much over and are we just extending the life of those as long as we can? Or do you see new ones being built? You know, I do see new ones being built. And um, I think uh, really as you look here in the United States, I think we're going to start with the small modular reactors. But I do think as we look ahead at the volume of electricity that's going to be needed and the volume of that clean electricity that's going to be needed, I do think that we're going to find occasions where people say, you know what, a large reactor would be more suitable. Is that going to be a large light water reactor or it could be a large other style of reactor. Um, I'll I'll get out of the United States for just a minute. Let's go over to Europe because um, there's several different countries over there today considering nuclear. France, Romania, Poland, just to name a few. And they're very interested in large reactors. And so I don't think uh, that large reactors are, quote unquote, a thing of the past. But I do think here in the United States, I think the near term, you're going to see more of the smaller modular reactors. And I think, um, you know, sort of as that wave uh, passes through, I think we'll be open uh, to a variety of sizes, some even smaller than small modular reactors. We call those micros. Before we focus on on the smaller technology, these large units being contemplated in Europe, 
Are they like our grandparents' nuclear plant, or will they look and act very differently? I think they will uh, look and act a bit differently. They're going to be very similar to what we're building in Georgia today. So we have two advanced light water reactors under construction, should be coming online uh, within a year. And um, and that style, the AP1000, which is a Westinghouse-style reactor, those are being very strongly considered by several countries uh, over in Europe today. Uh, France, as well, uh, has a uh, light water reactor um, that they're interested and building uh, within their country. And um, and so, yeah, they're a little bit like uh, your father's nuclear plant, but they have more passive systems, so systems that don't require operator action in order uh, uh, to act. And, um, and so, you know, let's say um, an upgrade uh, of, your, uh, of your grandfather's reactor. Okay. Let's focus on this, these 300 SMRs, the small modular reactors, that could be built out, what, in the next two decades? Yeah, two decades, a little bit more. For for those in the industry and for those outside the industry listening in, uh, describe what they would look like. And uh, would they be in urban centers? Would they be in outlying areas? Will they be moving around in, by freight train and rail? How, how would this build out look and how will the, the uh, industry embrace it? In terms of financing, will they be independently owned? Will the utility industry own it? What are some of the thinking going on? Yeah, so I would start by saying yes to all of what you just said. I think it's really going to be a mixture of several things. So you said, well, will they be closer to urban settings? They could be. Um, We're imagining the emergency planning zones around these smaller reactors needing to be much smaller, like the site boundary. Um, And as a result of that, they can be placed closer to things uh, that could be closer to a manufacturing facility. As an example, one of the things we see is the small modular reactors pairing very nicely with the manufacturing sector, uh, providing... So so let let me just stop you right there. To the extent that they are more locally integrated, would that mitigate the need for transmission and distribution construction? It could. Um, In fact, in some places they could be sited. They might be sited where you have that transmission and distribution today. So think about coal plants or think about fossil fuel plants uh, today that you imagine in the future that you'd like to shut down. Well, you rather than shut it down and have that significant impact to the community, why not just replace it? Why not just put carbon-free power right there? And so you could imagine it being on a coal site or it could be on a uh, gas-fired plant site and use that transmission and distribution. I'm sure as you're well aware, you know, siting and permitting is also very challenging for the transmission and distribution system. So the more we could reuse what already exists, um, it's actually, you know, better for everybody. Um, And then, of course, you know, have the carbon-free power, um, you know, at your disposal. But let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, right now, today, you imagine nuclear power and electricity. And I want you to think of it differently as you look forward. So in the future, yeah, it could be electricity. Could be high temperature steam is what you want. That takes us back to those manufacturing facilities we talked about. Recently, Dow Chemical uh, came out and talked about their interest in a small modular reactor. But what they want is the high temperature steam. They want to use that in their chemical processes. In addition, you might be producing hydrogen. Uh, Maybe that's the the, the quantity or the quality uh, product that you want instead of the electricity. And you don't have to choose. 
You might want electricity during the day and hydrogen at night. Um, you know, so the versatility that this highly reliable nuclear plant produces, the sort of variety of energy uh, that it's able to put out, I think makes it extremely attractive. And what about ownership? Will utilities, what business model do you see for introducing this on the scale of 300 units across the country? Yeah, I think it's going to be a combination of things. Um, I think it'll be some of the standard utilities that you know about today that already have nuclear plants. They're very comfortable with nuclear plants. They'll continue to use these to help them decarbonize uh, their portfolio. I think as nuclear gets smaller, you're going to have others that become interested in nuclear. Maybe the nuclear of today is a bit large of an investment. Well, that nuclear of tomorrow could be a much smaller investment. So I think it's going to bring uh, folks into the fold that don't currently have nuclear. Good example of that would be the UAMPS project with NuScale, and uh, that's the Utah Associated Municipal Power uh, System that is uh, interested to build that that first NuScale plant. So I think you're going to have others like that uh, that are going to become interested. I think some of these models, maybe not an SMR, maybe the smaller ones, maybe the micros. Uh, there's some businesses that want to make those and they want to operate them themselves. And so you know, I think you're really going to have a variety. Of, of models. So Doug Hunter at UAMPS has been talking about wanting an SMR for a decade now. What's taking so long? Yeah, well, big thanks to Doug Hunter for the leadership, quite frankly, that he has uh, around clean energy and bringing nuclear to the fore. It's a combination uh, of things, but I I can see that we're really getting down um, uh, to the actual deployment of of that vision uh, that Doug Hunter has had. Um, It's gone through the NRC licensing process. That has been a very significant milestone uh, for New Scale to have that design approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And And uh, I know that they're now looking into uh, the details of actually building one of these plants. In other words, they have to have pieces and parts fabricated, and they have um, that in in play right now. Uh, So I think over the next few years, uh, we're going to see his vision come true. Can you give us a prediction on what year the juice will start flowing? I say it'll be before 2030. Okay. What about other players like uh, Bill Gates and TerraPower? Are they marching into the market fairly rapidly. So they are. That's a, another very exciting um, opportunity. In fact, um, uh, the TerraPower uh, plant uh, partnering with Rocky Mountain Power out the, in Wyoming is a wonderful example of many of the things we just talked about. First of all, they're going to site it at an existing coal facility. So it's that exact example of using that transmission opportunity. Instead of using it for coal, let's reuse it. Let's use it for nuclear. Instead of that community having to step away uh, from being the thriving community that it is today, it's going to continue to thrive. It's going to thrive even more with this new plant in the same place that that coal facility was. In fact, um, it was really interesting to see as they selected that site in Wyoming, they actually had several different communities that wanted to have that nuclear plant sited at their facility. And, um, you know, one of the beautiful things to watch is to have, you know, communities really want to, you know, fight over which one gets the nuclear plant, right? That's not something that we're used to hearing about quite as much. So, uh, so very exciting. Uh, They're part of what's called the Advanced Reactor uh, Demonstration Program. And uh, so it's a public-private partnership uh, to bring this plant um, into creation. And uh, we envision that this will happen uh, again before 2030. 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't their technology use existing nuclear waste to to extract more energy? I think in the current view that they have, they will use what's called high assay LEU, which is a higher enriched uranium. Um, whether or not in the future they want to do something uh, with used fuel, but I know initially they're not uh, starting out with that as their premise. So Bill Gates has some degree of experience on building a business to large scale. Have you ever had a beer with him and sat down and talked to him of how he sees this growing the way Microsoft grew? I'd love to have that beer uh, with uh, with Bill Gates, but I can say that... Um, Would you invite me, please, and we'll, we'll, make, it a, <laughs> we'll make it a three-way chat. Absolutely. But but just think, yeah, but just think about it. I mean, you, you're absolutely right. So from a Bill Gates perspective, why would he get into this to build one or two reactors, right? The, the answer is he wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't make this kind of investment unless you had a scale. And think about the other things he's involved in, right? He's involved in big things in terms of, you know, how to really impact the world. So this is his way of saying, I see it. We've got to get carbon free. And I see by doing this, this is something we can do at scale. And I'm sure it's not just in the United States that he's interested in. He wants to start in the United States and prove it. But for his vision to come true, it would be for this to be deployed worldwide. So talk a little bit about what happens when when we get up to 300 SMRs. Do you think coal and even natural gas will go away as a source of generation? or be ratcheted way back? And do you see a grid that largely relies on wind, solar, and nuclear being in our future? I do. I I absolutely see nuclear as the backbone for the grid. Um, You know, I I won't say there won't be any carbon um, sequestration and storage, but I I don't think it will be a high volume. So I think your vision of uh, coal and natural gas being ramped back is is true. Um, I think whatever coal and natural gas that we do have, if some still does exist, it does have... um, you know, uh, this this carbon capture, if you will, associated with it. Um, but I think uh, the nuclear opportunities are going to be uh, very broad in terms of uh, different styles of reactors, not only for the grid, uh, but also for the manufacturing sector. And I think it sets up a perfect platform uh, to collaborate with wind and solar and even battery technology. I think every part every piece has a little bit of a part but i think they need a main player right they really need that backbone in order to make this the most affordable transition and um and i think that's really key you know people talk a lot about could be this could be that at the end of the day this needs to be done in a cost effective way and it's very very clear that when you add nuclear to the mix the overall system cost is reduced so the government is making a sizable investment in infrastructure right now with about $80 billion slated for the energy sector. Um, does this nuclear piece of the puzzle get any of that funds or would you like to see it get any infrastructure spending to help speed development? 
Yes. In fact, uh, Nuclear has received some of those funds. Um, in the recently uh, passed infrastructure package, uh, there was a $6 billion investment uh, called the Civil Nuclear Credit Program, and that was to be applied to the current fleet for any plants that were endangered of being closed uh, to try to save those plants from closure. Uh, so it was deliberately um, focused on the on the, the current fleet, again, to the tune of $6 billion over the next five years, and that was funded in the infrastructure package. In addition, uh, there was $2.5 billion funded in the infrastructure package, and that was for these advanced reactor demonstration uh, projects that we mentioned. So one is the Bill Gates project that's out in Wyoming. Uh, X Energy is another one uh, that was funded through that, and they're going to have their um, project out in the state of Washington, and they're uh, teaming uh, with uh, Energy Northwest. And, um, and so uh, two very strong examples. And the goal was, again, to bring this new development online before this decade is out. Focus for a second on that civil nuclear credit program and uh, California's ambitions to get carbon-free very fast. How might it affect the uh, Diablo Canyon closure? Great question. Uh, in fact, uh, it's actually just in very recent news um, that uh, Governor Newsom came out and talked about their interest in this civil nuclear credit program and uh, whether or not uh, they should relook at Diablo Canyon. So Diablo Canyon is in California, and right now it's slated to close in the 2024-2025 timeframe. But with this civil nuclear credit program, they um, have at least made some indications that they're interested potentially in applying for it and, um, and by using some of those funds perhaps to not close, um, but rather to extend uh, the life of the Diablo Canyon project. So this is very much a very fluid right now. It's, it's something that the state of California is looking at, and uh, we will see it play out over the next few months. Specifically, how would those funds be used? Would it be used for physical infrastructure upgrade? Would it be used as a tax benefit for the utility? How would those funds be applied? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, each plant needs to file their application and talk about what it is that they need. Right now, the guidance that came out for the Civil Nuclear Credit Program basically said it applies only to plants that have already announced that they intend to close. And right now that applies to two plants. That's the Palisades plant in Michigan, and that's the Diablo Canyon plant in California. And so you, it's a, an extensive application that you fill out and you talk about why, what your needs are. Why is your plant being challenged? Why does it need to close down? So it's an individual sort of site-by-site analysis. And then of course, this funding, as I mentioned, is available. Um, and then it goes through the Department of Energy uh, assessment to say, okay, does it make sense to use this credit uh, program and apply it um, to this plant? But it's a grant. Money is available. So I assume, or I know NEI is monitoring other plants. So are there other plants around the country that might be on this list or owners are thinking of shutting it down? Or are there other threatened nuclear base load plants? 
So, um, you know, it's a very dynamic uh, situation, as, as you could imagine. So when the price of gas is very low, um, it puts a lot of pressure um, because the price of gas actually is also connected to the price of electricity. Um, and when the price is, is very low um, in the merchant market, it's a challenge uh, for some of the, of the plants. And so no other plants have announced uh, their intention to close, but it doesn't say that other plants aren't challenged. More recently, uh, the price of gas actually has gone up. And so as the price of gas um, goes up, it takes some of the pressure uh, off, of, uh, off of the plants that we have. So I don't know of any other plants um, right now uh, that would be applying for it. But again, it's a very dynamic situation. So you introduced the whole concept of global economics and how that affects the complex energy mix that we have. If we move to 300 new modular reactors and increase nuclear share or at least total uh, output in our energy mix, what kind of vulnerabilities does that create in terms of our access to nuclear supply um, for fuel for for these uh, units that will be built? Well, that's interesting because right now, quite frankly, we're having a fuel supply uh, conversation, and it's really one, you mentioned before, infrastructure. One of the things that we need to look at is the infrastructure around fuel and fuel supply. And um, from a nuclear perspective, um, you you have to not only have the raw material, uh, that uranium, but you also have to enrich it. Um, and you also um, you know, have to, to fabricate it in order to use it in your reactor. And so right now, we're really taking a good look at that front end um, to ensure that our fuel supply is thriving. And there's some investment that's needed there. And we're having these conversations right now with the Department of Energy, uh, with the uh, folks on the Hill, with the administration, for the investment that's needed to make sure that the United States is well positioned, not only for the United States, but for us to also be able to export um, and ensure that the fuel supply broadly um, around the world is, is in good shape uh, relative to that. The challenge that we find ourselves in today is that today Russia is very engaged in the front end of the fuel supply. And uh, we've all seen Russia, um, you know, very bad behavior uh, with what they're doing over in, in Ukraine. And you have a lot of countries uh, that say, you know what, I, I want to do business with somebody else uh, relative to my to my fuel supply. And so we're working uh, very much to ensure that the United States and our allies um, are well positioned uh, without having to rely on Russia. How robust is the uranium supply situation in the United States right now? Depends on what part that you're asking about. Um, so there's um, mining. We don't do very much mining here in the United States. It's not because we can't. It's just that there's other places in the world um, that can mine a bit more efficiently. And uh, Canada is a great example. They have some uranium mines um, in Canada. And so in some cases, um, uh, you know, in, in that case, uh, we're not as much in the mining business. Again, that's an area that we're focused on uh, to ensure that we are doing some mining. In terms of conversion and enrichment, which were two other pieces of the front end of the fuel supply, we do have conversion facilities here in the United States. Um, we do have facilities for enrichment here in the United States. But in both of those cases, we really want to do more of it. Um, and again, that's why we're working with our allies uh, to have a broader picture of what investments are needed.
needed uh, to, to position this better. But it's wonderful to have this now because we're going to put this infrastructure in place. And what's that going to mean? Not only are we going to be positioned for those 300 SMRs that you and I are talking about, but we're going to be positioned for a lot more than 300 SMRs because it's not just the 300 SMRs that we want. We want more than that. And Canada wants more and Europe wants more and Africa wants more. So now is the time to invest in the front end of the fuel supply for the thriving nuclear market that we see ahead. What about the long unresolved question of nuclear waste? Uh, And we've debated about Yucca Mountain forever, it seems. And now if you have 300 SMRs that would be shipping units of depleted fuel, where would they go? Because currently, as you know, with large modular reactors, the waste is stored on site. It is. Can you do that in suburban Detroit and suburban Atlanta, or what What happens to the waste? Yeah, and so um, that is something, honestly, that, that we're taking on. There's countries like uh, Finland, I guess is a good example, right? They just put in a long-term repository in operation um, in Finland. I know Canada is also um, narrowing down from a site selection perspective where they want to build. Sweden, I think, also recently built. So there's a couple pieces to this. First of all, we need a long-term repository absolutely, as part of our waste solution. But I think we need to think more broadly and kind of just get out of all we need is a long-term repository. And you mentioned it earlier. I think in some cases, these new reactors that are being built have an opportunity um, to use some of the waste. And there'll need to be necessary steps to, to make that happen. Um, but I think that's interesting. Like what piece of that plays you know, overall into this? Because the reality is this thing we call waste There's 95% good energy in this thing we call waste. We've simply transformed it. It started out as uranium-235. You've turned it into uranium-238. It's not good to be used in our current light water reactors, but it is good to be used in other style reactors. So this is a real opportunity, I think, for us to kind of reevaluate this thing we call waste. It's a little bit of future fuel, right, because future reactors can burn it and use it. And then also to sort of recharacterize what's left, because what's left is a lot smaller in volume. Um, and so, you know, we can kind of better understand well, what actually do we need uh, for, for waste storage. So I think the fact that we see nuclear thriving, it also gives us other opportunities for how do we want to use and think about uh, nuclear waste. And, and those conversations are playing out now. So, Maria, you're giving an up assessment of how you view the future. Uh, A recent Economist article pointed out that nuclear share of electricity produced worldwide declined from about 17.5% in 1996 to 10.1% in 2020. Why that retreat? Uh, I guess it's a combination of things um, over that period of time. Uh, In the United States, um, we didn't need as many, I'll just say, of the large uh, reactors. Because of gas, the abundance of gas, right? The abundance of gas, that's right. It was just sort of easier and quicker to put these gas plants online, um, and the price of gas was was so very low. Um, And and I think um, as as we look ahead uh, for nuclear, we also have to own that 
our projects have been, you know, sort of uh, taking longer than anticipated and cost more than anticipated. And I think that's one of the things that the deployment of nuclear, as we talk about it now and as we look ahead, that we need to demonstrate, quite frankly, um, and that we are anxious to demonstrate in these small modular reactors. But I'll also mention that there are countries that continue to build over that same time period that you're talking about. Korea is a great example. And what that shows you is if you don't stop building like we did, stop building for 30 years and try again, nothing that you do that you stop for 30 years and start again is the most efficient way to do it. Why? Because you have learnings again. Korea kept building and they demonstrated that they could build on time, on budget, and with an improvement over those timeframes. And one of the um, plants that they built recently was in the UAE. And I think those are wonderful examples of of nuclear projects that have come in um, as expected. And so I I do think that we have some bright spots, uh, if you will, in that. And I believe these smaller nuclear projects that are coming to fore offer a great opportunity to demonstrate that these nuclear projects um, do have uh, the capability to be on time, on budget. And, uh, and I think that's really going to uh, cause nuclear to flourish. My last question uh, is related to the fact that for years, there's been a divide in this country over the question of nuclear power. And the environmental movement has been very strongly against it. Uh, but now there are signs that the carbon threat and global warming is getting people to rethink that position. So you have the EU adding nuclear to the possibility of getting green finance in the future. Uh, Do you see old nemesis falling down and new alliances being forged across the environmental movement with young people? Is there a rethinking of the role of nuclear? Absolutely. And um, and I think it's, it's really based on what you said, that if we would get out of the tribalism of, you know, sort of what technology do you love? And instead we look at it and say, you know what, we have a carbon problem. Let's put our heads together on how to solve this carbon problem. When, when we put our heads together in a common way, I think that's what brings nuclear to the fore because it's a workhorse for carbon-free energy. And I think people look at it and say, listen, that's the existential threat. The existential threat is the carbon that needs to be removed from the atmosphere and stop being added based on our generation of electricity and other things. And so um, nuclear's value is what's giving it the positive attention that it's getting today. It's a wonderful thing to see. And um, and we're, we're embracing and encouraging conversation uh, with environmentalists, answering any questions that, that they may have. Um, because uh, honestly, as we look ahead, and there's many, many studies that have been done, the United Nations, as an example, their latest study from the, the, uh, the climate uh, side of their house, demonstrated we have the tools in the toolbox to get carbon free and that includes nuclear very well thank you maria thank you it's great talking with you we've been talking with maria korsnick the president and ceo of nuclear energy institute in washington thank you for listening to grid talk you may send your feedback or questions to us at gridtalk at nrl.gov and we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform For more information or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov.
Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.